redundant because you know everything already. Uh, but what we are going to do is talk a little bit about some gait and characteristics of these channels and how that has some clinical implication. But the point here is that I hope you took away from the first lecture is it's a simple fact that the membrane potential of a cell is going to be determined by the iron with a gradient and the highest fractional conductance for that iron. Now what that means is if we open a whole bunch of channels then the membrane potential will immediately shift towards the equilibrium potential for that other iron species. And if we close down that channel, then the membrane potential will shift and get closer to the equilibrium potential of the next ion species that has the biggest conductance. So an action potential is just a drift of the membrane potential from one equilibrium potential to another, depending on which ion channels are open at any one time. Now at rest, it's potassium, so we're close to the potassium equilibrium potential. Then we open this huge sodium conductance, and boom! Now the membrane potential swings towards the potassium, uh, the sodium equilibrium potential, which is up at plus 60 millivolts. And then we close the sodium channels and go back to an elevated rest state, an elevated conductance state of the potassium channels. And so now the membrane potential swings back down to the potassium equilibrium potential. So the key point is that everything we've just said is the reason for an action potential. It's just that there's a temporal change in the conductance that's active at any one moment. And therefore the membrane potential swings between the equilibrium potentials for the ion that has the largest conductance at that instant. So what you're going to find is an action potential is just swinging from the potassium equilibrium potential up towards the sodium equilibrium potential the sodium channels close, the potassium channels go into a higher conductance state, and we swing back towards the potassium equilibrium potential. And that is an action potential. That's, that's all it is. Um, I apologize for the font size, guys. I'm going to try and figure this out for... Uh, I, I need to come in and load it onto this new polling system before coming up here. I didn't realize it was going to change the font. My apologies. So let's now look at, before we quite get into to action potentials, let's just take a look at the one thing. We know what determines membrane potential, roughly. Iron with the biggest fractional conductance and a gradient. But what we want to determine is, is this iron going to be at equilibrium or is it going to flow into or out of the cell? Well, the easiest way to do is to define what driving force is. The driving force Let's take the simplest explanation. When the membrane potential is at the equilibrium potential, when the, we're at the equilibrium potential, now think of that word, equilibrium potential. It means that iron is in equilibrium. And equilibrium means there's no net flux. So what we're saying is, clearly, if the iron is at equilibrium, there's no net flux. So therefore, if the membrane potential is at the equilibrium potential, there's no driving force, because there's no net flux. So driving force is defined as the difference between our measured membrane potential and our calculated equilibrium potential. And if our membrane potential is exactly on our calculated equilibrium potential, then we have no net flux of that ion. There is no net flux. That's how we started this whole lecture, saying when the electrical and chemical are equal and opposite, we have no net flux. Well, that also means that if the membrane potential is not equivalent to the equilibrium potential, then we do have flux of that ion. And it just remains to be seen, is that flux going to be into or out of the cell? Well, all that means is we have to compare the actual membrane potential to the equilibrium potential in order to determine which direction that flux is in. So let's take a look at this vector diagram. What we've said, potassium 120 inside the cell, 5 outside the cell. Therefore, the blue arrow indicates that there's a chemical force for potassium efflux. That means... Potassium will leave the cell. Now, let's start with a very simple situation. Let's start at equilibrium. Now, what I could do is I could plug it into the Nernst equation. 120 
over 5. Take the log of that, multiply it by minus 60, and we'd find out that our equilibrium potential is calculated as minus 83 millivolts. Okay. Then what I do is I take two electrodes. I've got a reference electrode, I've got a secant electrode, and I find out that the cell is indeed at minus 83 millivolts. So I measure the membrane potential, and it's 83 millivolts inside negative, this value here. The calculated equilibrium potential is minus 83 millivolts. So in order to find the driving force, we subtract one from the other. Minus 83 minus minus 83 gives us zero. There is no driving force. This ion is at equilibrium because the membrane potential is exactly on the equilibrium potential for that ion. So we can see here that the outward chemical gradient is equal and opposite to the inward electrical gradient and therefore no net flux occurs. Now this red arrow here, what if we change the size of that? What if the membrane potential was something different? If we made the red arrow bigger, what's that going to cause the flux to do? So if we increased the size of the red arrow, the electrical energy, that would mean that the red arrow is not equal and opposite, but we have a net effect of the red arrow, Therefore, we would get flux into the cell. Or if we shrunk the red arrow so that it's not as big, and again, we wouldn't have equilibrium, we'd have leakage out of the cell. So let's go through those examples. So here we are. I impale the cell, and I find out that its membrane potential is only minus 50 millivolts. Now think about it. The equilibrium potential is minus 83 millivolts. I don't have enough. I need minus 83 millivolts to keep potassium in equilibrium. Don't have it. I've only got minus 50. So what's going to happen? If our electrical energy is less than that required for equilibrium, then the flow is going to be down the chemical gradient. Yeah? So what this is telling us is this is the flow down the chemical gradient. I need minus 83 millivolts of force in the opposite direction. I don't have it. I've only got minus 50 millivolts. Therefore, the net is going to be the difference between those two. So in terms of plugging it into the calculation, we do the minus 50 minus minus 83. It leaves us plus 33. Now, here's the problem with conventions is the problems, we choose them. You know, convention doesn't make sense. It's just we choose to do it. So... If we set the driving force to be Vm minus Em, then you've got to realize that a positive driving force means cationic efflux, or unfortunately, anionic influx. Now, the problem with this is that students always just want to memorize stuff and plug numbers in. I think it's much better to do these little diagrams and show the vectors and then without even looking at inertia potential or the driving force equation, you can quickly figure out what in the heck is going on. So we'll come to that in a second. How would I drive potassium into this cell? What would the membrane potential need to be in order to drive potassium into the cell? It would have to be a greater magnitude than 83 and a greater negativity. So minus 84, minus 85, minus 86 millivolts, now would give us a bigger electrical energy than required for equilibrium. And therefore, if the electrical energy is bigger than the equilibrium, then the flux will be with the electrical gradient. And that's what the next slide shows. If the membrane potential is minus 95 millivolts, then we actually have excess electrical energy over and above required for equilibrium. We only need minus 83 millivolts for equilibrium. We now have excess millivolts. It's the inside the cells minus 95. That exceeds 83. So the difference between the two is the driving force. And you'll see it comes out as a negative, meaning that this is cationic influx or anionic efflux. So there's a the problem with conventions. You can't go to remember conventions. Well, I'm going to show you, hopefully, how to do that in a different way in just a second. But before we get there, I want to address this fact. Have you ever noticed that whenever we talk about a coupled process, a coupled transport system, like glucose, it's the sodium-glucose co-transporter. The calcium is the sodium-calcium exchanger. 
you tend to always find that sodium's in there somehow. Why is it that sodium is in there? Well, this is the reason. Because not only does sodium have a large inwardly, inwardly directed chemical gradient, but because the inside of the cell is usually negative, there's a strong electrical gradient that also allows sodium to enter the cell. Therefore, there's a huge driving force contained within that sodium gradient that can be utilized to move other objects. And so that's why you usually find that any process, a second reactive process, is energized by the sodium gradient because there's both electrical and chemical gradients in the same direction. Now, if you think about potassium, it's got an even bigger chemical gradient. But the electrical gradient is opposite. You know, we've got 120 inside the cell, 5 out, 25-fold difference. However, the electrical gradient's in the opposite direction. Not so with sodium. Both the electrical and chemical gradients are both pointing in the same direction. makes it an ideal ion to use to energize other processes and harness the energy in that driving force. Now, if we were to plug it into our equation here, if we were to say that the inside of the cell is typical, about minus 50 millivolts, think about it. If the inside of the cell is negative, that's going to attract cations. And if we've already got this huge bunch of sodium ions out there that want to come in just down the chemical gradient, then we're going to have a lot of flux, both down the electrical and chemical. So in order to quantify it, you can see here the driving force for sodium when the membrane potential is minus 50, is minus 50, minus the positive 59. This is the equilibrium potential for this gradient. That means there's 109 millivolts worth of cationic influx into the cell. That's a driving force. Now, crucially, will we have current or not? Well, what else do we need for current? Not just a driving force, but also conductance. We don't always have that conductance, so we need both of them. In order to get a current, not just the driving force we need, but also the conductance. At rest, this is the driving force for sodium. But if there are no sodium channels open, no sodium current. So driving force and conductance are both required in order to sustain a flux in order to sustain a current. So just a reminder, membrane potential, we measure it. Equilibrium potential, we can calculate it. All we need to know is the chemical gradient for that ion. And the membrane potential will be close to the equilibrium potential of the ion with the greatest conductance and that it also has a chemical gradient. We can think of this in a different way. If we plot out the typical equilibrium potentials. So we've got a number scale here from minus 100 millivolts to plus 100 millivolts. The sodium equilibrium potential up here, about plus 60 millivolts for a typical out to n tenfold gradient that exists physiologically. The equilibrium potential for potassium out here, about minus 80, minus 90 millivolts for a 120 down to 5 outwardly directed chemical gradient. A chloride gradient is very variable in excitable cells. It can be way up here. In epithelial cells, it's usually way down here at about minus 40 millivolts. So those are the equilibrium potentials for known concentration gradients of our ions. Now, what we do is we can impale the cell and measure membrane potential. Now, in this case, what is this telling us? Our measured membrane potential is here. What's that telling us? It's very close to the potassium equilibrium potential, which means what for potassium? Absolutely. This cell probably is almost exclusively a potassium conductance because our measured membrane potential is right on the potassium equilibrium potential. Now, if I were to open up a few sodium channels, what's going to happen to this membrane potential? It's going to shift slightly, isn't it? It's going to be held just shy of the potassium equilibrium potential. If I open more sodium channels, it'll get and now if I open many, many sodium channels, boom, we're going to drift down here until the membrane potential is very close to the sodium equilibrium potential. Now, the crucial part here is, the rather strange thing is, what is the driving force for potassium at this point? So bear in mind, here's a cell. It's got a huge outwardly directed potassium gradient, 120 down to 5. Are we going to see current of sodium? Uh, potassium? Thank you. No, we don't. Because the closer this membrane potential gets to the equilibrium potential, then the closer that ion gets to equilibrium. So the weird thing is that a cell sits there, 
all its potassium channels are open and there's barely any flux of potassium because the membrane potential is now very close to the potassium equilibrium potential. However, which ion has the greatest driving force here? The sodium. Because the membrane potential is so far away from our equilibrium potential, there's a huge driving force for sodium to enter the cell. Now, as soon as we open a sodium channel, therefore, boom, it comes flooding into the cell down this huge gradient. And, of course, the membrane potential now swings towards the sodium equilibrium potential. So the strange thing is, as when a conductance first opens, there's a massive driving force. But as the membrane potential gets closer and closer to the equilibrium potential, the flux of that ion slows down, slows down, and slows down as we get closer and closer to equilibrium. Now that's kind of weird, isn't it? Because you would think that it's all about the flux. But these fluxes are only temporary, and then we quickly get to a situation where it's a self-limitation imposed because the membrane potential gets very close to the equilibrium potential for the ion. Now, if I were to measure the membrane potential and it was here, what could I say? I'm recording a membrane potential of zero millivolts. Therefore, what's the biggest conductance in a cell? There's multiple permutations that we could fill in here, isn't there? It could be that it's approximately 50-50 sodium potassium and no chloride. It could be that it's, let's see, a slightly bigger chloride, but almost equivalent sodium. That would give us zero millivolts. The only way to tell would be what we would do, for example, is experimentally, I'd be measuring this membrane potential. What I'd do is I'd then block the chloride channels. And does it cause this to move? If it didn't cause it to move, there was no chloride conductance. Then I would block the sodium channels. And if I block the sodium channels, then boom, we would go straight up to the potassium equilibrium potential because now that is the biggest fractional conductance. Everything else is blocked. So in order to characterize which currents are present in the cell, you have to sequentially block them and watch where the membrane potential moves. Likewise, if I were to block the potassium channels and the chloride channels, then boom, this would swing up to here. Now, if it didn't swing up to there, that tells me something crucial. It tells me there's another conductance in there that I ain't blocked yet. And I can determine how big that conductance is by how far away we are from the equilibrium potential. Okay, so the action potential we've really done to death. It is just the swinging of the membrane potential between those different points. Okay, my apologies, has moved this as well. This cell is meant to be up there. So it's 150 inside to 15 outside. And we'll work through this example slowly. Okay, so let's reason our way through this using the Nernst equation. We know that the inside of the cell is 150. We know that the outside of the cell is 15. So 150 divided by 15 gives us what? 10, the log of 10 is what? Is 1. Okay, so we're going to have to multiply 1 by the first part of the equation. Minus 60 over z, which is 3, gives us 20. So 20 minus 20 times 1 
gives us minus 20 millivolts would keep lithium in equilibrium. Okay, so far so good. Now, it might occur to you, it's like everyone wants to think of a greater electrical energy as we increase the valency. The point here is there is an electric field and you need less of an electric field to have an effect the more charged the particle is. Therefore, a divalent ion can be held in equilibrium with less of an electric field because it's divalent. That smaller electric field has an equivalent effect because it's a more charged particle. So it's the other way around to the, the way students usually think about it. So what that means is we don't need minus 60 millivolts to keep this in check. We only need minus 20 millivolts to keep this ion in equilibrium. So what you can see here is lithium would flow out of the cell down its concentration gradient. In order to keep net flux of zero, we need to make the cell interior negative. We have to attract that lithium to the inside of the cell. Otherwise, it's going to leak out. That's what the Nernst equation tells. The inside of the cell needs to be negative. Boom. Therefore, what's the magnitude? Well, we use the Nernst equation. That's the 20 millivolts. So minus 20 millivolts keeps this thing in equilibrium. Now, do we have more or less electrical energy than required for equilibrium? We have more. We've got double. So we've got 40 millivolts of energy for influx. We've got 20 millivolts for outflux. Therefore, what's the net difference between the two? 20 millivolts of influx. We have... Answer B. So the key here is this minus 20 millivolts is what we need for equilibrium. We don't have that. We've actually got minus 40 millivolts. Therefore, we've got an arrow that's double this size being opposed by an arrow that's half its size. The difference between those two vectors is inwardly directed 20 millivolts. 20 out, 40 in means 20 in. Okay? So you can actually do this without going near an Ernst equation. If you just draw the little vector diagram and think about which direction the flow is occurring based upon the gradient, you don't even need to go near a convention. You can reason it through without having to worry. Is it minus 60 in over out or is it 60 out over in? Um, you know, in, in exams, you're, you're going to struggle with these conventions. So the thing I urge you to do is draw out a couple of these vector diagrams and just see if you can convince yourself what it is without just plugging numbers in. Now, if you're familiar with the Nernst degree and you've done it in your undergrad, you will go do what you want. You don't need me to tell you what to do if you're familiar with it already. But I'm just saying if you're not got a firm grasp on it, try to get the intuitive thing first and then move on to what the equations tell you as a shorthand. Okay, we good with this? Any questions? Not at the moment, at least. <laughs> oh, did you change him as I was talking? <laughs> Seriously? I bet you did. Okay. For our Sonic Foundry's sake, there is the slide summary of what we just drawn our way through, so it's going to be in a readable fashion on Sonic Foundry as well as my illegible fashion on the slide before. So to summarize the thinking, this is it. If the membrane potential is equivalent to the equilibrium potential for that ion, no net flux. If the membrane potential is greater than the equilibrium potential, then the flow will be with the electrical gradient. But if the membrane potential is smaller or opposite polarity, that's the crucial part, smaller or opposite polarity, then the flux will be with the chemical gradient. And that kind of should now summarize your thinking. Look, you're all frankly writing that down. You think it's a shortcut. Please understand it because we're not just going to ask you the question. We're going to ask you to apply the principle. So it's crucial that you understand the principle and not just the shorthand. The questions won't say 
hey, what happens when Vm is bigger than ENA? They'll actually ask you to apply a principle and come up with an answer. Let's finish off by a little mention of some channel behavior and why that might be clinically relevant, because that's why you're here after all. You, you want to know the clinical relevance of this. Some convention again. Uh, normally, negative potentials we show as a downward deflection, so we negative here, positive here. Most cells have a rest membrane potential that's somewhat negative. Now, what does that tell you? Right back at the beginning, I said to you, epithelial cells, maybe minus 50 millivolts, excitable cells, minus 80 millivolts. What does that tell you? Yeah, it tells you that epithelial cells usually have other conductances and fairly significant other conductances. And usually it's chloride and sodium conductances at rest, which is why they're far closer to an equilibrium potential that's either the sodium or the chloride equilibrium potential, somewhere away from the potassium equilibrium potential. Whereas a neuron, it almost exclusively has potassium channels. Therefore, its membrane potential is far closer to the potassium equilibrium potential. So even just by looking at a membrane potential, you can get a rough idea of what the major conductance is in that ion. Or certainly you can rule out there being a single major conductance if it's somewhere in between. But the point is that any upward deflection towards zero means that there is no polarity. Zero means no polarization, no difference. So upward towards zero is depolarization. Now, it's also, unfortunately for you, we still call it depolarization when that happens. Okay, So we'd still call this depolarized, even though technically speaking, it's reverse polarity. Any upward deflection, any positive membrane potential is what we term a depolarization. Any decrease and an increased cellular negativity is a hyperpolarization. And so what we're going to now discuss is a movement of the membrane potential from depolarization back to a repolarization and a hyperpolarization during an action potential. So here's our action potential. We're going to spend much time here. Usually there's some graded potential, meaning there's some stimulus. Either you touch something, you smell something, you see something. There's some sort of sensory stimulus, and the intensity of that stimulus gives us a current that's congruent with the size of the stimulus. So if you push really hard, you give a big depolarization. If you push very gently, you give a small depolarization. Or if you see a load of light, it causes a large depolarization. If you see a little bit of light, it's a small depolarization. There's some stimulus that gives us this graded potential. Now, if this graded potential reaches threshold, that is a depolarization that's sufficient to trigger the sodium channels, then we get this breakaway positive reinforcement. Depolarization breeds further depolarization because as the sodium channels detect the voltage change, they respond by opening up their conductance. That open conductance causes further depolarization, which is sensed by other sodium channels, which causes them to increase their conductance. And we get this positive feedback. That feedback is explosive and instantaneous almost. So as soon as a few of the channels detect that we've got to sufficient depolarization, they open. And then they magnify the depolarization, and then boom, all sodium channels now explode into a big sodium conductance, and we rock it up towards the sodium equilibrium potential. Then what happens is that those sodium, well, it depends on the cell type. This is not typically neuronal. This is perhaps more akin to a cardiomyocyte action potential, but we'll worry about that in the later lectures. For the time being, just worry about the fact that at some point, we have to repolarize the cell. We have to get back to a normal rest membrane potential. We do that by turning off the sodium channels and now increasing the potassium channel conductance. And now the membrane potential resets itself towards the potassium equilibrium potential, which is at a very negative state. So we've got some kind of graded potential. If it reaches threshold, it triggers this positive feedback. And then the sodium channels switch off. The potassium channels go into a higher conductance state. 
and now we revert back towards the equilibrium potential for potassium. So at rest, we have what are called leak channels, leak potassium channels. They're active and open, and we have a conductance at rest, a large potassium conductance at rest, which means that our rest membrane potential is close to the potassium equilibrium potential. In an instant, as soon as these sodium channels detect some form of depolarization, that triggers their activation. It triggers the opening of what's called a gate. A gate is just as it says. It's a gate. It's a doorway on the channel. So we have this channel. It's got a doorway on it. As soon as that gate detects the depolarization, boom, it flips open, and now sodium pours into the cell. It causes depolarization, which triggers more and more sodium channel conductance. But then we get this very sharp inclination here towards the sodium equilibrium potential. So at this point, we have the peak sodium conductance. But what's happening there in terms of the sodium current? What's the sodium current going to be at that point? It's not going to be that large, is it? Because the membrane potential at that point is very close to the sodium equilibrium potential. Therefore, the strange thing is that as we get closer and closer to the peak of the action potential, we lose driving force for sodium flux, even though the conductance is large. Then the sodium channels start to close automatically. Then the potassium channels start to go into a bigger conductance state than they were at rest through a different set of potassium channels, the delayed rectifier channels. And so now our membrane potential swings back and it gets very close indeed to the pure potassium equilibrium potential. So this is more true. What we have is on that downflux, this point here, when we have a very augmented potassium conductance, is where we're closest to the potassium equilibrium potential. And we call that the after hyperpolarization, meaning that we're even more hyperpolarized here than we were at rest. And that's because the potassium conductance at this point is a far bigger fraction of the total cellular conductance than it was at rest. function of both, in fact. So the sodium channels by this point are probably off. And the potassium channels, not only do we have the rest leak channels, but the delayed rectifiers have now become active, and they have opened up their conductance. Now, interestingly, it is something that's an issue. Uh, if I were to say to you, where's the peak potassium conductance in absolute terms? Strangely, the peak potassium conductance in absolute terms is here. But that's not the point where the biggest fractional conductance is, because at that point, although that's where the biggest potassium conductance is, we still have a very big sodium conductance, and therefore we're halfway between sodium and potassium. When we switch off the sodium channels, actually, the potassium conductance at this point is slightly less than it was there. But because the sodium channels are off, it's now the biggest fractional conductance. It's now the biggest fraction of conductance of the total. And therefore, this is where we're closest to the potassium equilibrium potential. Now, that's a good point because it, it, we don't lie here because this is the biggest potassium conductance in absolute terms. We lie here because it's the biggest fractional conductance. We have to differentiate between the two. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, because I can say to you, look, a conductance could be 300 millisiemens. And here it might have been 400 millisiemens. But if the total cell conductance is only 3 millisiemens, that tells you that the entirety of that conductance is described by the potassium channel. That wasn't the case here, because here the sodium channels were still open. Therefore, we have 50% potassium conductance, 50% sodium conductance. Therefore, we're halfway between the potassium and sodium equilibrium potentials. So it is crucial to differentiate between the total conductance and the fractional conductance because an action potential and a membrane potential, it's determined by the fractional conductance, the greatest fractional conductance. Now, you can see exactly what I'm talking about here. Maybe I should have done the slide before yapping on about it, which is, look, because 
the sodium conductance, the red line, is very large, but also the potassium conductance is very large, we're at something like zero millivolts. Here, yes, the total potassium conductance has actually gone lower. But because there's no sodium conductance, it's back to being the biggest fractional conductance. of The total cellular conductance is all potassium. Therefore, we're close to the potassium equilibrium potential. So fractional conductance is the crucial component to drive membrane potential, not just the total conductance. I'll read you, leave you to read through that. I don't need to read for you. What I want to do is I want to flip on to something that we can get our teeth into from a clinical point of view. This is a sodium channel, and this sodium channel has two different gates on there. It has an activation gate and an inactivation gate. And this is what the channel looks like at rest. The activation gate is closed. The inactivation gate is open. Now, at rest, we have a large driving force for sodium flux, but we do not have a large sodium current because the conductance is zero. The gate is closed. But those gates, both of them, in fact, are voltage sensitive. Now, the one thing I want to say is, look, that guy doesn't have a clue what that guy's doing or vice versa. These are pure mechanistic gates in that they're a charged amino acid in an electric field usually, and therefore they move in an electric field. That's usually what controls a gate. That's how it's voltage sensitive. It detects the electric field around it, and because it's a charged amino acid on that hinge, this gate drifts around. So under rest conditions, activation gate shut, inactivation gates closed. As soon as we change the electric field across there, as soon as we generate depolarization, that causes a triggering and an opening of the activation gate. That now allows an influx of sodium and a strong depolarization of the cell because we now have a current, a sodium current flowing into the cell down through the channel. But strangely, depolarization also causes the inactivation gate to close. It's just that the kinetics of the inactivation gate are a lot slower than the kinetics of the activation gate. So what tends to happen is that during depolarization, boom, activation gate flips open. That same depolarization causes this inactivation gate to slowly make its way closed. But of course, in between, both gates are open and we have a flow. But it's a self-limiting current because the activation gate is also triggered to close by depolarization. Now, if we want to look at how we can describe that, what we can do is we can look at something called the open probability. Now, the open probability is a very simple uh, concept. It's the probability of the door being open. So, I know that the open probability of the door up there is something like 0.1. It only ever opens when you guys leave. Most of the time, it's closed. Therefore, the probability of being open when I go up there is very low. Same for a channel. Same for a gate. Now, what you can see here is the activation gate. Now, what you can see, this is the activation gate line. I'm sorry for the quality of this uh, scanned image. But as we're here at minus 80, minus 100 millivolts, normal membrane potential, the activation gate has an open probability of zero. You ain't going to find it open. But the inactivation gate has an open probability of one. So that's just like the previous picture we showed. At rest, activation gate closed, inactivation gate open. As we depolarize the cell, and that's that graded potential, that stimulus that came at us, that causes depolarization down to minus 40, minus 20, down to zero millivolts, you can see here, boom, that causes the activation gate to open. Its open probability becomes one. It triggers the activation of the activation gate. Now we have flux. Now we have sodium flowing into the cell down that gradient. But what you will notice is that that depolarization also caused our inactivation gate to have an open probability of zero. Basically, the same depolarization that opened the activation gate caused the closing of the inactivation gate. But there is a temporal difference between the two. There has to be, because without the change uh, over time, we would see no current. So the fact is, activation gate opens quickly. We get the current flowing, but 
but that same depolarization eventually causes closure of the inactivation gate. But we need that time differential, otherwise we wouldn't see a current. Now the crucial thing is, look, we're now in refractory period. This channel has its gates in the wrong position. Therefore, if the next stimulus comes in, it can't react. You know that. You've heard of a refractory period. That's where the next stimulus comes in, but we don't form an action potential. The reason for that is the gates aren't in the rest condition. They're in the wrong position. The activation gate is open, and the inactivation gate is closed. Well, we've got to reset them back to their original configuration. How do we do that? Look, we do it using voltage. We open potassium channels. We hyperpolarize the rest membrane potential, and we cause the resetting of the gates back to their original configuration. Therefore, the after hyperpolarization that we see due to opening the potassium channels is crucial to reset the sodium channels back to their original configuration. Okay. Let's consider something like, in the final 10 minutes, a clinical consideration. What I said to you previously was that in order to trigger an action potential, we need to reach threshold, yeah? So imagine this is rest. We come up here, we reach threshold, and then boom, we get our action potential formed. What do you think would happen if we hit the same threshold but a far slower rate of depolarization? Do you think we would generate an action potential or not? We don't, actually. Um, and so I want to talk about the mechanism behind that. It's crucial, absolutely crucial, that when we depolarize a cell, we do it pretty quickly and that we hit the threshold with a high rate of depolarization in order to convert it into an action potential. Now, the reason that if you do it slowly is because, remember we just talked about the sodium channel being voltage sensitive. You change the voltage, it changes its gating. Potassium channel is too. The potassium channel is activated by depolarization. Remember, that's what causes the repolarization. Now, what that means is, if we slowly depolarize a cell, we're actually given plenty of time for the potassium channels to enter a higher conductance state, higher conductance state, higher conductance state. Now, what that means, of course, is if we've now got a nice, healthy population of open potassium channels, it's very difficult to rip the membrane potential away from the potassium equilibrium potential. We stabilize the membrane potential close to the potassium equilibrium potential. The other function is that as we slowly depolarize a cell, what happens to those sodium channels? The inactivation gate tends to close before the activation gate is opened. Therefore, we debilitate the whole fraction of our sodium channels by having a slow depolarization. So the two mechanisms that lead to the failure of the action potential upon slow depolarization is that one, the potassium channels are in a high conductance state and tend to stabilize membrane potential at the potassium equilibrium potential. And two, many of our sodium channels have entered into the refractory state because that depolarization caused the inactivation gate to close before the activation gate opened. Now that channel's in its refractory state. So we don't get the formation of action potentials. Now, when might this happen? Well, this might happen with chronic hyperkalemia. When we see a patient with hyperkalemia, what happens is that they tend to have weakness and paralysis under worst cases. The reason is that the hyperkalemia causes a depolarization of the membrane potential, yes, but it also causes electrical stability. We've got a high conductance for potassium now that stabilizes the membrane potential because of the depolarization of the chronic hyperkalemia. Also, a whole bunch of sodium channels have become refractory because of that chronic depolarization. So any long, slow depolarization tends to damp sodium channel activity, augment potassium channel activity, which causes electrical stability, and it causes it to be very difficult to cause this action potential to form. Now, one thing I should have mentioned beforehand, I guess, because this is often uh, a sticking point, is that 
why is it that hyperkalemia in the first place causes depolarization? Now, what do I mean? You know what I mean by hyperkalemia, yeah? Excess potassium in the serum. Always assume that cellular potassium is normal. Therefore, if I increase serum potassium, I reduce the magnitude of the potassium gradient. If I reduce the magnitude of the potassium gradient, what do I do to the potassium equilibrium potential? I cause it to get closer to zero. That's what we call depolarization. Going from minus 83 closer to zero is depolarization. So the simple fact that we raise extracellular potassium means that we depolarize the equilibrium potential for potassium. That does two things. That causes the membrane potential to slowly depolarize, and that in itself causes the sodium channels to become refractory and also to stabilize the membrane potential close to our new depolarized potassium equilibrium potential. Therefore, we lose electrical excitability, and your patient has some form of paresthesia. You know, the sensations get strange because the carriage of signals is blocked. And also, in the worst cases, we get weakness and paralysis because we can't sustain action potentials. Now, strangely, on the other hand, uh, hypokalemia, what time is it? We still have time? Hypokalemia does the same thing. Hypokalemia is a reduction in external potassium. So this is when we have a paucity of potassium outside the cell. Now, strangely, that also results in weakness. Now, what could be the mechanism for that? Beautiful. If we have a bigger potassium gradient, then we hyperpolarize the potassium equilibrium potential. And since the membrane potential follows the potassium equilibrium potential, then the membrane potential hyperpolarizes. It becomes more negative. That means we come further from threshold. And the further we are from threshold, the more difficult it is to get to threshold in order to stimulate an action potential. So what would happen with hyperkalemia is that instead of having a rest membrane potential here and our threshold here, the rest membrane potential would hyperpolarize due to the augmented potassium gradient and therefore the augmented potassium equilibrium potential. That now holds us further away from threshold and makes it more difficult to reach threshold in order to fire an action potential. So hypokalemia, in the worst case, can also cause muscle weakness and paralysis, but a very different mechanism. One takes you further from threshold. The other one takes you closer to threshold. Yeah. So as we go to hyperkalemia, actually the rest membrane potential gets closer to threshold. But the crucial part here is it augments the potassium conductance, which keeps us close to the potassium equilibrium potential. And it closes down those inactivation gates on the sodium channels, which means we've no longer got a conductance to cause depolarization. In which case, we have electrical quiescence, we have electrical stability, and we stay at our albeit depolarized membrane potential, but it's a stable depolarized membrane potential. So hyper and hypokalemia both cause paralysis and weakness, but for very different mechanistic reasons. Okay, that I've summarized right there for you. That I've summarized for you in words. I want to go back to our very first slide and ask you now, which of these is true? Okay, make sure you click in. And then let's go over why 
the right answer is the right answer. Come on, click those clickers. So let's see uh, what you voted for. 69% went for the potassium channel blocker. We've still not convinced the 16% about A, and we've not convinced the 15% for E. Let's start with E. It's a definite no-no, because if you block a closed channel, what did you achieve? Sodium channels are closed at rest. Blocking it, that doesn't make much difference. Yeah, It's like closing a closed door. That ain't going to do anything. There's a good reason that this is also wrong. Most of you recognize this one. I see the temptation here, but here's the back to that crucial core principle. Remember, we've got a 120 millimoles down to 5 millimoles. That's a big gradient. How much flux do we need to generate the electrical gradients? Negligible. Therefore, how long is it going to be before we dissipate that big gradient? It's going to be a long time before potassium flows out of the cell and that we reach a completely depolarized state. It's going to be very slow. So if we inhibit the sodium-potassium ATPase, we don't see anything initially because that gradient is robust and in place. It's going to take the next 10, 15, 20 minutes for that potassium gradient to slowly run down and for a slow depolarization of our, uh, membrane potential back towards zero millivolts. So the key here is that, yes, blocking the sodium-potassium ATPase will affect membrane potential, but think of it like it's like a rechargeable battery. It's like taking the charger away. But the battery's still good for a while. It's just that when the battery depletes, you've got, a, you've got no charger to charge it up again. So the reason it's not the sodium-potassium ATPase is a time course. We don't see a rapid change in the membrane potential because we've got a big, robust gradient, and it's the gradient that generates the membrane potential. It's still intact for at least 10 minutes after the sodium-potassium ATPase is knocked out. Okay, good luck. Hey. Can you post that summary sheet? I can indeed. <laughs>